Ladies and gentlemen, friends, my name is Henrik Urdal and I'm the director here at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO. And it's my great privilege to welcome you to this event on Rethinking Development Through Global Urban Middle Classes. The seminar is hosted by the PRIO Migration Center and is part of the Migration Rhythms in Trajectories of Upward Social Mobility in Asia which is a research project, uh, an ongoing uh, European Research Council, or ERC-funded effort, led by Marta Bivan Erdal. PRIO is an independent, international, and interdisciplinary research institute. We're specializing in peace and conflict research, and for 60 years now, we've been producing research that seeks to be both academically cutting-edge and relevant for policymakers and practitioners around the world. Migration research has for more than two decades been an important and central part of PRIO's excellent and interdisciplinary research profile. In our role as a research institution, we are making our primary contributions to the field of migration through rigorous academic analysis. However, our aim is that this effort shall have an impact beyond academia facilitating knowledge-based policy development and public discourse grounded in information, analysis, and facts. And this is also our aim with this public seminar. While international migration, people moving across state borders tend to attract the greatest attention both in the political domain and also in academia, the by far largest movement of migrants is within countries and in particular from the countryside to cities in the global south. While often portrayed as a challenge that needs to be curbed, urbanization is often associated with positive social, political, and economic change. And this is also a key focal point in the Migration Rhythms Project. Rule to urban migration is arguably one of the key transformative forces of our time. More than half of the world's population already lives in urban areas, and from now and until 2050, the growth in the urban population in the world will be larger than total population growth. So all global net population growth will be added to cities. Urbanization trends are strongest in Africa and Asia. The African urban population will double in only 20 years, between 2020 and 2040. And all the 30 most rapidly growing cities in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. And then next there are a number of Asian cities, as we'll also hear today. While this growth does represent challenges and pressure points, urbanization also has an enormous potential for generating development and growth. And I'm very pleased with uh, this event and the research project that is underpinning it, that it is addressing precisely this conundrum. And I look very much forward to hearing what you all have to say today. And again, a very warm welcome. And then I'll give the floor and the microphone to you, Marta. Thank you very much, uh, Henrik. It's always um, a pleasure to have the PRIO director present at seminar. So we're very happy about that. Good morning, everyone. Um, I have a couple of practical points to raise first. So I've been instructed to ask everyone to please turn off the Bluetooth on your phones because our audio system um, will cooperate better in that case. So thanks very much for doing that. Which leads me to the second point, which is that we are recording this event, um, only audio recording it, um, and it, the recording will be made available on the PRIO website later on. 
which means that even if it might be possible to speak without microphones, we are using them uh, for that reason. And it also means that when we come to the, the questions and comments session afterwards, I will be asking you to briefly just present who you are so we also know that. But then you should also be aware that we are recording the event. Okay, so with those practical bits of information, let me say a few words about the topic uh, and, and the project that Henrik mentioned that is underlying it and introduce you to the program for today. So we've titled this seminar, Rethinking Development Through Global Urban Middle Classes. And this took uh, quite a discussion between the five of us <laughs> who are uh, involved in today's seminar, trying to think what is it that we would like to actually focus on and what are the pressing questions uh, that we'd like to raise. So I think, as Henrik already alluded to, uh, urbanization is, is a critical issue in the global scene today. Um, and it's interesting to think about that. I think not least right now, this is true in many moments, but I think not least right now, there are so many crises that maybe deserve more of our attention. And yet, fundamentally, many of the changes that are ongoing in the world are not really centered around those crises always, and certainly not as much as the kind of main news features would suggest. So today we're taking a bit of time to step away from the, the main news, not because we don't care, we do, but because it's also important to pay attention to what is kind of beneath the main, main headlines. And in that beneath the main headlines, <clears throat> outside of kind of crisis and, and major inequalities around the world, we know that mil urban middle classes are growing uh, and this uh, is having a huge impact. And so the fundamental question is, how does that actually affect the ways in which we understand and think about development? And we've put development in inverted commas. We're not going to provide a definition, but we imagine we'll come back to this in the discussion afterwards. So some of the questions that you might want to be thinking about while you listen to the presentations in a moment are these. How does urbanization matter? What about the roles of education, migration, and consumption in all this? And also, I think quite importantly, <clears throat> how does it matter <clears throat> who is doing the looking at development in this context? And how does it matter where they or we are located in these discussions? Again, things I hope that we'll come back to in the discussion. So I'll just say a few words about the project that is um, hosting this, this seminar uh, before I then introduce the speakers and what they will be talking about. So as Henrik mentioned, the project is called Migration Rhythms in Trajectories of Upward Social Mobility in Asia although today we're not only focusing on Asia, but in the project we are. So the backdrop for this project is that 90% of the global increase in the size of middle classes is actually happening in Asia. And so what we're trying to figure out is what is actually driving this? And I think sort of as, uh, as is quite obvious from the topic of this seminar, what is the role of urbanization and cities, a role to urban migration in this? And we're looking at this in a very specific manner. So we're trying to focus on which roles migration plays in the histories of families and the experiences of families who experience some form of upward social mobility. That is not to say that stagnation and, and downward social mobility do not happen, they do, but we are focused here more on, on the upward social mobilities of families in the long term. So as with all research projects, we have some main questions that we're trying to answer. And the three questions that we're trying to answer here mainly are related and specifically to the roles of migration. So one is related to the specific roles of migration of different distances. So we're focusing on internal as well as international migration. And in most migration research, international migration is getting more than its deserved share of attention. So we're in a way downplaying the role of that because that is the empirically justified view, I think. 
Secondly, we're looking at this in a temporal perspective. So it's not a historical project, but in a way it could be. So we're looking at uh, long-term and short-term implications of mobilities, but also of people staying in places. And finally, we're trying to figure out which role, roles different mechanisms have. So I mentioned education, migration, of course, there could be others um, for social mobility across Asian, Asian cities. And that includes remittances, but it's not limited to that. And if you're interested in knowing more about the project and its findings, you can sign up to some updates here. So briefly then, what is it that we're actually doing? Uh, we've just finished data collection, so what we have is survey data from, from four different cities in Asia. We have family history interviews from the same four different cities uh, in Asia. And these are Hanoi, Karachi, Manila, and Mumbai. So it's a mixed methods project. And I won't say much more about that, but my colleagues will share a little bit later on that you'll see is linked to that aspect. And if you're interested, not so much maybe in academic journal articles, but other forms of learning about what we're doing, uh, we will be producing comics from each of the cities uh, and an animation, and also teaching materials, teaching materials for schools. That is uh, not right around the corner, but in the next one or two years, these things will be available. So if you're interested, again, please do sign up. So today's seminar. We're really fortunate uh, to have two authors of two really interesting books that speak to this topic here. Uh, both of them are based in Oslo. One of them we're kind of borrowing a bit at Prio. He's actually based mainly at the University of Oslo, but we're having him as part of our project as well. So he's also a Prio at for the moment. If you're interested in these topics, I'd warmly recommend checking out the books. And the good news is that you will actually hear a bit about them from each of the authors today as well. So the two books are firstly um, one which is focusing on Ethiopia and it's called Becoming Middle Class, Young People's Migration Between Urban Centers in Ethiopia. Uh, and this is a book authored by Marcus Ross-Prenes, who is a researcher at Fafo. And the second one is a book which is called Consumption in Vietnam's New Middle Classes, Societal Transformations in Everyday Life. And is a book authored by Alva Hansen, who is mainly at the University of Oslo, but also here at Prio and part of the Migration Readiness Project. So we'll be hearing about these uh, two books. Um, and books are kind of long. They don't have much time. So you'll actually just hear you know, a few thoughts from each of the authors about <coughs> the work with their books, which has been over a very, very long period of time, and the topic of today's seminar. So a flavor, at least, of what the books are about. And then we'll also hear from my two colleagues, Karen Liao and Anno Abraham, both senior researchers here at Bria, working on the Migration Rhythms Project, relating to some of the content of today's seminar and the books and our ongoing research. So basically offering some reflections again, which we can pick up in the discussion. And with that, I will actually now pass the floor to Marcus. Thank you, Marta. Uh, it's very nice to be here. Good morning, everyone. Um, so uh, I'm very pleased to be here and talk about this book because it was uh, published in the autumn of 2021. And I was at that time working in Eastern Ethiopia on a very different project. And because of the pandemic and everything, there wasn't really any, I didn't have the chance to promote it or talk a lot about it. So I'm very happy to be here and, and talk about this. I think that I'm quite interested and uh, passionate about in the sense that I'm trying to, uh, to do something slightly different by talking about middle class in Ethiopia. And the reason for that is, uh, as we'll talk a bit uh, about here today, is the, the kind of representations that we have access to 
uh, are somewhat uh, problematic, I would argue, in the sense that what we learn or what we know about Ethiopia and many other African countries is somewhat limited. And uh, we as researchers, we have some sort of responsibility to portray a wider uh, range of realities to, to create some sort of knowledge of what the world is. And that's what I will talk about today. So just going back a bit in time, uh, when I was young, many years ago, I went to Ethiopia as an undergraduate student for a, a semester abroad. But prior to going there, I found it very difficult to imagine what uh, university life would be in a place like Ethiopia. I was familiar with other places in this world, but it, the, the representations that existed of Ethiopia, they were so uh, negative in a sense. So what I had heard about Ethiopia was primarily about famine, war, other issues. So for me to kind of uh, visualize that there were also people who go to university and commute to work every morning, I found that a bit difficult to, to think about. But of course, that was my own uh, naivety or lack of understanding of the world. But as I went to Ethiopia, I kind of gradually gained a somewhat deeper understanding of what was going on there and saw that there were uh, a wide range of variety of the ways in which people live their lives. And that made me question the, the literature and the, the media representations of this part of the world in the sense that it didn't reflect the reality as I encountered it. And for me, that um, gave the foundation for, for thinking about why uh, particular aspects of life are uh, represented and not others. Uh, but that's not to say that there aren't problems that need to be researched and explored. But I think there is some value in, in looking at other um, dimensions of it. So for my PhD research, I conducted uh, ethnographic fieldwork in Ethiopia over a year. Um, and I did that in two cities, mainly in the capital, Addis Ababa, but also in a smaller city up in the north of Ethiopia in the Tigray region. Um, because there is migration between those areas and uh, so I also kind of moved between those two urban areas on a regular basis, about once a month, so I shifted between those two places. And through that exploration, um, that um, I kind of, there were some emerging themes in, in the research and uh, in the book here. I primarily talk about three key themes, I would say. And the first one is about higher education. As the education system in Ethiopia is set up in such a way that people who when they get into university, they're often allocated a place in a different region. And that's to encourage kind of uh, inter-ethnic uh, engagement. So people often move a lot for higher education. And those experiences are, as they are for many, very transformative in, that, in the sense that people meet people from different backgrounds and they become educated. Uh, not only in the sense that they get a degree, but also their um, their way of being in the world transforms in the sense that they become more articulate, they widen their perspectives. And this uh, migration was very central in this as well, uh, in terms of accessing uh, uh, different perspectives. And this kind of generated a change that other people would observe. So uh, for those who didn't go to university, there would be a difference between them. And then the second uh, key theme, I would say, is ethnicity. And that was something I didn't really want to go into because uh, for me, again, this goes back to my kind of uh, political agenda in terms of not representing the main issues or kind of narrowing down on issues. But ethnicity came through very clearly in, in the analysis of my data. 
Um, so I, I kind of had a struggle to, I wanted to avoid portraying ethnicity as a determining factor. Uh, sometimes if we hear about conflict in Africa, it will be described as ethnic conflict or ethnic uh, warfare, uh, which kind of um, simplifies uh, uh, the political conflicts that are there. But still, ethnicity was very important, so I had to touch on it. And what happened is, when people move between regions in Ethiopia, they get exposed to very different meanings uh, of ethnicity. Uh, so I'm trying to argue that mm, notions of ethnicity also transform. And through migration within Ethiopia, people kind of learn to uh, reflect, but also uh, present their ethnic identity in new ways. So that was another kind of key transformation that's happening through this internal migration. And the third key theme is uh, development uh, and or progress, uh, which I will talk a bit more afterwards. But first, I just want to talk a bit about the term middle class. I would say in Ethiopia there is no equivalent of that terminology, but there are, of course, hierarchies. Um, but uh, people wouldn't speak about middle classes. There are, of course, other local terms that uh, are used to determine status or kind of uh, contest status and allocate people in the hierarchies, but there are not, uh, uh, there's not a clear discourse around class. So that was a choice I made not to describe an empirical reality in the world and decide who is middle class, but it was an analytical tool for me to kind of highlight this point that I mentioned, that I'm not focusing on, on the lower segments, but I'm trying to look at groups that are often overlooked, uh, like the urban middle classes. So a lot of research, uh, if people uh, look at something in the rural areas, they would, the researchers will travel through the cities where the urban middle classes live and there are cafes and uh, a whole industry catering to their needs, but the, the researchers will kind of, that will not be part of the description because they're looking at a, a very different segment. But I would argue that these urban um, realities are very important for, for understanding uh, the broader uh, society. And here, uh, migration comes in uh, quite clearly. Um, also, in research, there's a lot of focus on uh, migration from Ethiopia through, through the Sahara and the, across the Mediterranean Sea and to Europe. And the same with uh, migration to Saudi Arabia and other, par other parts of the Middle East. And those are huge patterns of migration and very important. Uh, but, but there is more to it. I would argue that there is a class dimension too uh, to those kinds of migrations in the sense that my informants, uh, for them, that those kind of uh, patterns of migration did not appeal at all. It was way too risky and the potential gains were not sufficient. They could, of course, empathize or understand why other people who had very limited opportunities in Ethiopia would embark on such journeys because if you die at home or if you die on the journey, it doesn't really matter. So they, they could kind of understand the, the logic behind it but for them, they wouldn't risk it because their lives were uh, comparatively more comfortable and it was rather through migration within Ethiopia and to other urban centers that they could uh, develop their, uh, their lives and uh, fulfill their aspirations. So, uh, but I will go a bit to development as that's our key topic today. And uh, we said we're not going to define it or try to find any answers, but for me, I think it's useful to kind of at least uh, reflect a bit on what it means, because uh, we often hear still the, the country, uh, sorry, the, the word uh, developing countries. It's still being used quite frequently, 
but it's not used. Uh, it's kind of, it doesn't mean much. It's kind of indicating that there are countries with problems and therefore they are developing. They still need something more. But it doesn't really illustrate what development means. And for me, I think development is about social change. And I've listed a few of those dimensions of it that I think are important to include when we think about it. But uh, so it means planned social change as a process for the future, but it can also, of course, refer to what has already happened, that these things have been developed. So the concept is a bit problematic. Um, and so when I'm talking about middle classes and development, uh, it's no way to uh, ignore that there is a lot of poverty. There are challenges related to education and all these other things in a place like Ethiopia. But at the same time, there are huge differences between people. So the, the middle classes, of course, they are not necessarily poor. They will have a lot more resources. Uh, they will send their kids to very good schools. Uh, they have a different sense of security than, than the, the poorest people. And another thing to take into consideration, in Ethiopia, development has been a huge uh, effort for a long time by the state, I would say for at least a century. There's been a huge focus on that. has been kind of the main role of the state is to develop the country, how to improve the conditions for the people, uh, how to ensure that everyone can eat three times a day, uh, how can we make this country a middle-income country, and so on. And there has been a lot of improvement of the indicators uh, over the last couple of decades, but with some setbacks in, in the last couple of years. So uh, that goes back to uh, what Martin mentioned about who's looking at development and where we're looking for, uh, from, excuse me. Um, because development is often uh, seen from the outside and in terms of the World Bank and NGOs and our perspectives of, on place, places that need to be developed. But what I'm saying here is that there are the local perspectives and the local notion of development and the, notion, um, the state's effort to do that as well. So getting to um, some of my own findings here, I related to this, is um, there was a very interesting concept that emerged in my, in my research, which uh, means both what we refer to as development and as progress. And here I'm talking about development more as the material change, the construction of roads, high-rise buildings, kind of transformation of the, the environment. And then uh, individual progress on kind of uh, the individual level then in terms of when the world is transforming outside, how does that affect me and my own opportunities and people's ideas of how they can improve their lives or change their lives was very closely related to, to those changes taking pl place in the environment. So their, their expectations of modernity are changing when that uh, perceived modernity is also changing. And here, migration was very central in the sense that uh, uh, modernity or development is located in particular places and especially in the bigger cities in Ethiopia. So by migrating to, for example, Addis Ababa, people would expect to have access to a different sense of development uh, or modernity that constituted of mm, people from uh, very different backgrounds that would kind of widen their own perspectives. So this meant uh, people from other parts of Ethiopia, but also foreigners, and people really value that in terms of uh, challenging their own thinking. So that's kind of a, something that could generate progress in their own lives because they're 
that uh, develops them as individuals. And the other thing was about access to technology, access to higher uh, speed internet, and all these things were considered very important, not just uh, in instrumental terms, but also as how they as people uh, transform um, because of that. So here was an interesting uh, observations by people who did not migrate when they when people returned, people could really notice a difference that they become more, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, articulate or kind of, they could notice a real difference from the people who remained somewhat backward because they stayed at home and they didn't get exposure to that wider diversity that was out, out there in the world. So by talking about this, I think this attention to middle classes and, and urban lives then has uh, some real potential for not only, well, the first thing is to recognize the diversity of livelihoods, and that's kind of a simple point, but I still think it's very important to recognize that in a place like Ethiopia, that, again, back to my naivety, I get so much information that creates a very negative image, but it doesn't really uh, illustrate the diversity of the livelihoods and, and how life really is. So I think that uh, more attention to middle classes opens up some interesting uh, perspectives and a broader understanding of how people live their lives, but also the relationship between those who are middle class and uh, other people in those hierarchies. And again, uh, this then is also related to thinking about who development is for. And of course, we, are, we often think of it as something that's very important for the lower segments because there are many people who struggle to get by and survive. And of course, they need support and improvement of conditions. But uh, development as a broader process of social change is important for all segments of society. So for the middle classes, it's, it's also for us. I'm just trying to make the point that I think uh, development shouldn't be centered only around the, the, the poor, but it has some value for, for other groups as well. And the final point is about that this opens up for potentially for rethinking a bit what development is and what it means in the sense that it um, challenges a bit of the, the notion that, or I'm, I'm characterizing a bit of it, we have some ideas of what development is and what it should be, but I think there is uh, some real value in, in learning more about emic or uh, local perspectives of what development is to create a dialogue around it to, to gain a deeper understanding of it. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus, and thanks also for keeping uh, very well to time. Uh, I'd like to invite Alva now to come up, and I think we'll move geographically a little bit to Vietnam, uh, but stay actually with many of the same topics, but maybe with less, perhaps, let's see, focus on education, but I think all the more focus on consumption. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Marta. And thank you all for, for being here. I'm very pleased to, to be here today. Um, we will move to Vietnam indeed. And what I decided to do was to um, base my talk both, in, sort of in order to answer the question of the day, to base my talk both on, on this book that Marta mentioned that came out um, last year, late last year, on consumption and Vietnam's new middle classes, that basically builds on, on a decade of work of, on, on middle classes and consumption, mainly in Hanoi, but not only. Um, and then combine that with still uh, in-progress data from the Migration Rhythms Project and, 
the field work that I engaged with in, in Hanoi a few months ago. Um, as a human geographer, I will approach this from a scalar logic. Uh, <laughs> I start uh, at the global and then we'll zoom gradually inwards. Uh, Marta already talked about the, uh, the Asian middle classes. Uh, basically, almost all of this vast expansion in the global middle classes that we are seeing unfolding is taking place in Asia and is expected to take place in, in Asia. Um, of course, India and, and China uh, drive much of this, but far from all of it. And, and Southeast Asia, we, where we will focus on now, um, plays a, a very important, although too often overlooked part. Um, I locate this as part of, of what the geographer Peter Dickin called the global shift, which focuses mainly on, on industry and sort of this um, and production and this shift of... Um, uh, of the gravity of, world of the world economy, as he put it, from the west to the east and to the south. Um, and this is, I would argue, sort of a, a, a second part of this global shift, where we see not only production moving to Asia, but consumption moving to, to Asia, and the main consumer markets of global capitalism being located in Asia, and somewhat ironically, the main consumer markets of global capitalism being located in communist regimes. Um, We'll talk a bit more about that. <clears throat> um, I have a couple of important starting points. One of them is that the Asian middle classes, or perhaps the, the, the middle classes in general, as Marcus also talked about, uh, are poorly understood in the development field very often. And my second starting point is that we should change that. Um, I think that their importance is, is quite obvious in, in, a, in a lot of different ways, but the what, what I mean by, by poorly understood is not that they are completely ignored. They are there, right? And uh, they are very often mentioned in development reports and, and so on. Um, but there's a lot of caricatures of the middle class out there. Uh, for example, speaking of it as a middle class, there are quite obviously a lot of middle classes. Um, there are a lot of st stubborn myths about the middle classes. For example, that they are automatically a force for democratization. And we know that they are not necessarily that. Um, we, there, there are caricatures of the middle classes as somewhat, of, of the Asian middle classes perhaps in particular, as uh, in some ways sort of extremely conspicuous in their consumption, that they're only looking for status and that they're consuming uh, a lot more, it seems sometimes, from, 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 uh, from um, uh, media discourses than, than other uh, people around the world, which is, again, not true. I included a, a very important point from the historian Frank Trentman, who says that for most people in these middle classes, uh, life is not about going to the mall, but living on the edge in a, in a daily struggle. So being middle class doesn't mean that you're rich. Uh, it can mean that you're fairly rich, but very often it does not. Um, and this, again, is some, something that annoys me with the development field sometimes, um, Although they have become better at sort of diversifying the middle classes, the World Bank, for example, used to define anyone earning or spending more than $2 a day as middle class. And they have become better at that. So they have a, a lot of different categories now. But it's, it's fascinating how they managed to talk about class in a completely classless manner. Um, there is, for example, no upper class. So there is the poor and then categories of the middle class, all the way up to the extremely rich, it seems. Um, all right, there's a, there's a lot we could say about that, but let's let's move over to to, to Vietnam. 
Um, Vietnam doesn't necessarily emerge on these, for example, this graph of the, the most rapid uh, expansion of, of consumer classes because they, they tend to drown in the numbers from, from China um, and, uh, and in India and so on. But Vietnam has uh, seen some of the most rapid developments in the world in terms of economic development and is seeing uh, some of the most rapid expansions of, of middle classes. Um, it's, Vietnam is, is broadly considered a, a great development success story. You could take any development indicator and Vietnam is among the best performers in the world. It has been since the late 1980s. Um, well, you have, we have to exclude some development indicators like democratic rights and so on. Um, but but on, 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 any, uh, on any of the classic development indicators, uh, Vietnam performs extremely well and also always pushes above its, uh, punches above, above its weight, sort of. Um, how have they done that? Well, it's a long story. Uh, there are a lot of similarities with Ethiopia, I think, as, uh, as Mark has talked about. It's a, it's a clear example of a, of a kind of developmental state. It's a... Um, to make, to make a very long story short, there were market reforms in the 1980s. Since then, extreme growth rates. Um, there's been targeted global integration with the world. Remember, this was a completely isolated re regime back in the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, and then the development of what is called the socialist market economy, similar to China. So this development of what is seen, what is presented by the communist regime as uh, sort of the best of both worlds, the market economy in a socialist setting. And this is important, and I will try to get back to that. Um, urbanization has, of course, also been uh, a, a very important part of the story, although maybe to a lesser extent, uh, at early stages at, at least, of development because, uh, than, than many other cases because of quite strict household registration policies, just like in China, if you know uh, China. So you couldn't just move to the city unless you had the, the, um, the, the formal rights to do so. And this still matters, but less so than in the past. And Vietnam has seen um, both uh, migra uh, rapid migration in numbers into cities and also uh, rapid growing importance of the major cities, especially then Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, but also other cities like Da Nang, for example in driving uh, Vietnam's development. Okay, so in this, in this development uh, success story, uh, we have seen the emergence of, uh, of the, the, the new middle classes. And this is, I could go on forever about this, because this is interesting. Um, this is a, a regime that is built on a sort of peasant revolutionary um, struggle, right? And this was built on on basically peasant revolutionaries. Um, and um, the middle class was then to a very large... There was a middle class back in the days, um, often, for example, French-connected uh, through colonialism. The middle class was seen as anti-revolutionary, had no place in, uh, in the, the revolution, in the new Vietnam. Um, and, of course, the consumption patterns of the middle classes had no place in the vision of a socialist Vietnam. And then this, the, this merging of a market economy and, uh, and a socialist and, and a highly Leninist system has seen this gradual, over time, acceptance and embrace of a consumer society. Um, that also means reluctantly an embrace of the middle classes. Middle class isn't a term that is used. This is 
um, according to the regime of classless society. So it's not used, but there is a middle income category that is now quite, quite frequently used. Um, and in this, I would argue, and this is my analysis, there's been a move from the new socialist man to the new socialist consumer. And I don't know if you know the, the, the new socialist man or the new Soviet man from the Soviet Union, which was this ideal type communist citizen, uh, was selfless and learned and revolutionary, of course. Um, and this has been then gradually replaced, I argue, with a new socialist consumer, which cannot do whatever uh, they want, but they... Um, we have seen this vision of, of what is considered sort of the civilized and modern. And these are terms that, the, that the, the state uses a lot in Vietnam, the civilized and modern state and the civilized and modern citizen are basically, although of course never stated, but basically middle-class lifestyle, right? Sort of middle, upper middle-class lifestyles. And this is, is very interesting, I think. <laughs> um, so I have, in, in my book, I call this um, consumer socialism. So the somewhat uneasy merging of capitalist consumer culture and, and socialist ideology, and then uh, partly then rewriting both of them. Um, some would perhaps also say that in this process, the, the regime has uh, unintentionally created sort of the ultimate capitalist consumer, perhaps. Unfree as citizen, but free as consumer. Um, I think, to a large extent, consumption is not only closely related to development. Consumption, to a large extent, is development. It's a way of delivering development to people, consumption of a wide range of goods, and it's a, it's a way of understanding or sort of really feeling progress for, for people. And Vietnam has been very good at delivering development to broad parts of the population. There are clear ethnic the lines here as well, especially then between minority and majority groups. Um, but in general, uh, it's considered uh, an inclusive development model. Uh, but the middle classes, of course, stand out, um, no matter how we define them, basically. But the, the ones who are not poor stand out with larger houses, more, uh, more stuff and, and other vehicles, right? Understanding them um, can be done through uh, studying their geographies. Uh, we can, we can um, for example, talking about education, um, what we see very clearly in the Migration Rhythms Project in, in Vietnam as well, is how uh, preoccupied the, the middle classes are with, with education. And they are willing to, to move for education, for their children especially. And also, of course, uh, 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 youth going abroad or moving to the cities for, for education. Very important and much more important than conspicuous consumption of stuff. Um, so people are willing very often to save a lot of money in order and, 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 and then... Uh, refrain from, from spending on themselves in order to, make the, to have the kids go to school. This is extremely important. We can also study what they want to learn. And for example, uh, learning English as the defining part of the middle classes now. And this uh, is, of course, fascinating. Um, what people want to learn in or foreign languages can tell us a lot about, uh, about a country and, and their history. Right? So in Vietnam, this has basically moved from French through Russian and German and now English as the uh, by far defining language, foreign language. 
Um, we can, of course, approach them through their, their uh, specific uh, geographies, so places where they, and these are pictures from fieldwork now in August, uh, the places where they, where they drink, um, um, what they eat, uh, how they get there, uh, then mainly on motorbikes in Vietnam, or cars if you're upper middle class. Um, and there are also, this is very important, which again tends to be forgotten when we zoom in on the middle classes, there are vast infrastructures of, of uh, less fortunate people, of very often poor rural migrants who are completely necessary to, um, to enable the middle class lifestyles through the, the, the cheap uh, street food places that enable the middle classes to eat out every meal of the day if they want. And very often that, that is done. I do, the, do it myself when I'm in Vietnam. Um, and, of course, you can also uh, approach them through their life histories, which is one of the things that we've done in, in migration rhythms, um, where we see very clearly that uh, becoming middle class is often a work across generations, um, including migration, then often grandparents or or parents moving into the city and, and so on. Um, and yes, so just final slide, uh, just to, to try to rethink development then through the middle classes based on, on what I, I said now. I think I, I basically agree with Marcus on everything you said. Um, we need to move beyond poverty. That is, that, that is quite obvious in, in, in development. I think partly already doing that. We need to move beyond uh, the rural-urban divide, very often these divide, these are very often connected. They, the Vietnamese middle classes often move back and forth, the lower middle classes especially, between the rural and urban. Um, we need to move beyond uh, methodological nationalism to, to understand how these uh, middle classes are made possible across scales by global migration patterns as well, by remittances, by education abroad, by... Uh, online shopping or whatever, there's a lot of different things. And I believe it's time now, although I don't have a good alternative, but it's time to move beyond the north-south divide because um, it so often doesn't make sense, right? Uh, and we need to move beyond uh, the singular and, and really embrace the, the heterogeneity of the, of the global middle classes. And then discussing as well then what is what is development uh, for and i believe the middle classes are important um in a lot of different ways in defining development uh, as well both as a driving force for development in a lot of different ways but also as a as a defining force parts of the middle classes have the power to be part of defining what development should look like okay thank you very much Thanks very much, Alva, and I think also setting the scene very well for the discussion afterwards. But before we move to that, I'd like to invite uh, Karen Liao, colleague here at Puyo, and senior researcher on the Migration Rhythms Project. We're not sharing sort of findings for real because we're still in the middle of um, sorting through our data and doing analysis, but we still have some insights we can share. So Karen will be giving you some teasers about the findings you'll be able to read about later on from the project. Karen? Thank you, Marta. And thank you everyone so much for being here. I know it's a bit early, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I hope you are enjoying the discussion so far. It's been great to listen to Marcus and Arvid talk about their books, which significantly contribute to current and context-specific notions of development and the urban middle classes. 
And I think they importantly engage with these discourses by looking at how development processes take place in different countries and in different cities, in particular in Asia and Africa. Okay. <laughs> right. So as Marta has mentioned, in the Migration Rhythms Project, we recently completed family history interviews across four city contexts, namely Hanoi, Karachi, Manila, which is my home city, and Mumbai. So across these four cities, um, we've been able to gather 25 family history interviews in each city context. And currently, we are in the process of weaving these analytical connections between migration and middle class livelihoods through the prism of intergenerational family histories. And this approach has been useful for us um, in a way because it allows us to engage with Marcus's and Arvis' work, but also looking at it through uh, how families uh, survive over space and time and how they come into middle class status, especially in urban cities. So we see, we through the process of our ongoing analysis, we are seeing all of these uh, insights uh, that relate a lot to what Marcus has presented earlier and what Arve has also presented earlier. So I would like to share two key observations from our family history interview so far that can hopefully contribute to this discussion and how we can think about the different meanings and manifestations of development, especially when we look at it in terms of um, how they take place in the global south, uh, especially in different regional and country-specific contexts. So first, similar to Marcus's research, we find that internal migration, especially to the cities, has been significant to how families have improved living standards and moved up towards some level of middle-classness in their specific cities. But at the same time, our starting point also more broadly captures different patterns of internal and international migration apart from rural to urban movement. And this focus has been productive for us leading to some notable findings on not just the role of internal migration, but also the role of multiple migrations in how families become uh, middle class and improve their living standards in Asian cities. So for example, many families across the four cities have benefited from the role of parents or grandparents who chose to internally migrate from the provinces to the city. And in a sense, this resonates very well with Marcus's work because a lot of these internal migrants moved for education. And then some, of course, moved for work, but it is the pursuit of education that also enabled them to access more job opportunities in the city. And these older generations of internal migrants were able to earn an income, settle in the city, raise families, buy or rent property, and were able to send their children to school and to also afford some forms of leisure. While we found more internal migration histories among families in Mumbai and Karachi, international migration also featured in several family histories in Hanoi and showed prominently in Manila, often involving a parent or child who is a labor or student migrant. 
In Hanoi, for example, most of the respondents from the provinces moved to study in Hanoi first. Hanoi, from what I've learned from our collaborators, is the center, uh, the the center of cultural, uh, political life, and also education. So, in a sense, many internal migrants moved to Hanoi to study. But many of them also found jobs in Hanoi and settled thereafter. On the other hand, a number moved internationally as well for work or study in countries like Germany and Russia before returning to Hanoi. In Manila, many Filipino families have multiple family members who, were, who are international migrants. Filipino migrant workers in Asia, Europe, and North America have sent remittances to their families repeatedly over long periods of time. And remittances have not only become the source of basic survival for the household, but also a means to be able to afford a bit more compared to lower-income groups and the urban poor. So, for example, uh, one of our Filipino respondents uh, has a father who just retired, but that was after 40 years of contractual seafaring work. So that's 40 years. And on top of that, she has an aunt in New Zealand, an aunt in the U.S., and she has three other uncles who are seafarers. And all of those relatives have, in a sense, helped each other out uh, and have also helped helped each other raise families in Metro Manila, where where most of the interviewees' relatives live. Marriage migration is also notable. Some internal migrants, many of them women, moved to Karachi and Mumbai upon marrying, or they moved because their spouse had to move to the city. Some Filipino families also have members who emigrated for marriage or settled abroad, such as in the U.S. or Australia. Um, We also have a respondent whose niece uh, emigrated to Norway because she married a Norwegian. These relatives sometimes support Um, extended relatives back home, whether through financial support or actually finding educational and employment opportunities for their younger relatives, like their nephews and nieces. Lastly, migration. We find that migration is also linked to external and major political events and other shocks, like conflict and other reasons, which Anu and I can discuss uh, further later. The second point I wanted to share, based on our observation so far, relates to how migration is deeply connected to a family's trajectory into middle-class status over time. We find that migration histories shape a family's capacity to sustain urban living in a city and to afford a range of consumption and lifestyle practices, including those related to food, transport, home living, and shopping. So in a sense, this echoes very much with what Arve was talking about, about different consumption and lifestyle practices that reflect lower middle to middle middle class living standards in cities in ways that they don't consider themselves as poor, but they also don't consider themselves as wealthy, that they are able to afford certain things, but they're not exactly able to just be extravagant every day. So for later, and Anu will be discussing this more later on, we also found data on consumption ownership 
of property assets and other investments, which also resonates with what Arve was talking about regarding transformations in consumption lifestyles and also the idea, for example, in Vietnam of the new socialist consumer. So uh, Anu will be talking about this more later on related to the survey. But apart from changes in consumption, and I think this connects very well also to Marcus's and Arvis' research, is that we find that apart from consumption practices, the migration experiences of family members, especially older generations, also partly reinforce the passing of particular norms and values to children, some of which are sometimes labeled broadly as middle-class values, although this is something debatable. But some of these norms and values that they often share, their uh, share with their children are values of hard work, frugal living. So they would tell their children to save or to invest. Um, and they also encourage education. So we have a lot of respondents who said that they would always insist that their children finish their studies. So this relates a lot also to what Marcus was talking about, about the emphasis on education. Also, many of these middle-class families across the cities recognize, increasingly recognize that both that they do have financial capacities, but they do have financial limitations as well. And that's why many of them are increasingly interested in economic activities beyond employment. So that means starting new businesses, or starting um, or getting into investments, right? And lastly, and again, this connects very well to the presentation's points on aspirations. Internal and international migration can also shape middle class hopes and aspirations. Many of our younger respondents have taken inspiration from the migration of their parents, hoping to migrate as well, although there's more emphasis now on international migration for work or education. International student migration has become an option many, uh, many parents aspire for their children. And so in a sense, this is also interesting because it says something about the meanings and manifestations of middle-classness and development in Asian cities. That in a sense, education is indeed a form of capital. It is indeed an indicator of status, but it's also a marker of hope, aspiration, and achievement for the family as a whole. And in some of my field work, we can see this clearly because when I would do house visits, families in their homes would post up pictures not only of family photos, but graduation photos of their children and sometimes all degrees, all of the certificates that their children have earned. So as we move ahead with our project, we will continue to engage with Marcus's and Arvis' work, especially in thinking about the connections between migration and middle-classness, and also about how this focus can enable us to contribute also to these broader discourses of development, especially how they take place in Asian cities. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Karen. And now, last but not least, I'd like to ask Anu to come and share some insights also from the survey work in migration rhythms that she's been leading. Anu. Um, right. Uh, so the, the presentation is modeled on the survey largely, but also loosely on uh, conversations that we have had with uh, local researchers in all the four cities that we have done the survey uh, in. And... Um, yeah, so maybe 
I can uh, start with my first uh, slide. Okay, I'm, I'm a bit technologically challenged. Please bear with me. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, so to begin with, uh, so let's uh, looking at uh, the middle classness and uh, focusing on Asia. So as um, you know, the Migration Rhythms Project uh, focuses on uh, the upward social mobility uh, among the growing middle class in Asia. Um, <clears throat> so uh, why are we focusing on Asia and uh, why are we focusing on the middle class? As Marta said in the beginning, um, yeah, one thing is about the, the rising middle class, the growth of middle class uh, globally. And we also see that most of this middle class is uh, growing in, in, in the Asian cities. And secondly, we are also thinking about uh, uh, bringing in more or, or knowledge creation or nodal production from the global south that uh, uh, and adding to the existing literature on middle class. That's another hope of, of the project. Now, um, coming back to uh, the question that I think most of the presenters raised here, who is the middle class? I think the easiest definition that we find is that they are those who are not poor and those who are not rich. Now, that's kind of easy to say, but difficult to define when you are trying to do research on middle class. So, um, so who falls in the bracket? Especially when we had to like talk to the enumerators who were going to the field and interviewing people. There was this question as to, um, so which households do we go to? And then uh, it was an interesting process, developing uh, or defining the middle class for the project, um, based on, as Arve was pointing out, existing definitions which have limitations, like the World Bank and ADB, uh, which does recognize now that there is a heterogeneity. Okay, so, so the ADB has four different middle classes, but you can definitely not compare the lowest middle class with the highest middle class groups. It's, uh, yeah. Um, and then we also identified markers, which interestingly, um, I could probably show the next picture, next uh, slide for the pictures, um, which were interestingly similar across our different city contexts. Like, okay, so so instead of asking people, like, so we had to, we, we were doing a random sampling method. So we had to first like identify households from the outside before going in and doing the survey. So um, how do we identify middle-class households? Now, these are not exact representations, I would say, because again, different. But uh, these are from the dif four different cities. And, but probably you can notice there are quite some similarities among the pictures. So these are houses of what? Uh, what are local research partners, as well as based on extensive literature review, we found to be lower middle to middle middle class neighborhoods in the four different cities. And I've, purposefully not label the cities. So you can take a guess at uh, which uh, is uh, in uh, which city. Yeah, so that's, um, yeah, so we came up with these, uh, not we came up, we collated these different uh, possible, um, yeah, characteristics that define the middle class or, yeah, uh, yeah. And um, yeah, went ahead. For this now, let me come back to what I'm supposed to say. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So um, 
Yes, the survey, as Smata mentioned, is about 500 households that are lower middle and middle middle uh, from four different cities, Hanoi, Karachi, Manila, and Mumbai, respectively from Vietnam, Pakistan, Philippines, and India. And I, th I just discussed about who we think are found to be middle class. And as we said, there is a lot of, a lot of homogeneity between who ends up being in different stratas of middle class across cities, but there was also a lot of uh, heterogeneity within every city about who is the middle class. Now, this was also quite interesting as to, uh, in, in, in terms of self-identification as well, like who thought that they were middle class. And also there was like, depending on which part of the middle class you were part of, there was also this interesting conception of whether people positively or negatively associated with being middle class. Right. Um, now, um, moving on, some of the common themes that ran across most of our conversations were um, about aspirations and also about frugality. I think Karen already mentioned that. It, it, it was, I think it's repeating because it was quite um, repetitive in both aspects of the project. Um, <clears throat> Now, uh, moving on, the other thing that we focused on in the survey was basically looking at uh, social mobility. And as you can see, I've put social mobility and then upward with a question mark and intergenerational with a question mark. Now, this is related to what uh, both Marta and Karen were mentioning. Most of the mo mobility that we saw in the urban middle class households were upward social mobility. And... There were strong linkages to migration there. And, uh, but we also saw that a lot of this was intergenerational. So you have um, a person or a family that came to, to, to a city and perhaps struggled a lot. And then they have children or grandchildren who, are, um, who have either transitioned within the middle class upward or, or transitioned from being in a lower class to being in the middle class. But of course, we did find people who have transitioned downward and have become middle class as well, um, which were some interesting um, stories. Perhaps that would come out more in our uh, research. <coughs> the mechanisms which... Uh, so if we are focusing on upward social mobility and intergenerational mobility, the mechanisms that aided... I think it's. I can just run, run through this. One was education, as we saw in all of our presentations. There's a lot of emphasis on education, especially higher education, because it's seen as that thing which can take you forward. Uh, and there's a lot of um, uh, hopes pinned on uh, education leading towards mobility. But we also see a lot in uh, economics literature about um, educational mobility leading to income mobility. That's something that we are seeing here as well. Um, second one is occupation or income. And the third one is migration. Now, the thing is, as Karen was earlier saying, these things are also quite intricately connected, at least from what we see in our data. Like People are willing to move or are willing to sacrifice, in a way, for education as well as occupations. Like People are moving really long distances, either internally or internationally, just to take up a job so that they can have some upward social mobility. Same thing with education. Uh, um, outcomes. I think um, Arve did talk about consumption. 
And but we also see in our uh, survey that saving, investing, creating assets is quite prominent when we discuss about uh, middle classness, both in terms of aspirations and in also in terms of what they have already got. And same thing with ownership of house or land. Like repetitively, we find that house of your own is considered as a security or um, yeah, as something that's important. Again, it's the same with, thing with education. Um, but regarding migration, uh, I would stop with this. It's kind of interesting. <coughs> On one hand, those who are middle class in cities also go transnationally in the next generation, like migrate to larger distances or to more um, advanced places. But then we also see that there is a sense of comfort when you once you become middle class, which in some of the field sites that we have also leads to a certain level of comfortable immobility. Okay, we don't have to run anymore to um, reach where we have to. We have in a way reached somewhere that, yeah. So I would end with that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a sky view of one of our field sites. Thanks. Thanks very much, Anu. I'd like to invite all four of you now to, to come up on the stage. Um, and usually with these seminars, we run out of time for questions. Very often that's linked to the fact that um, people don't ask the questions when they have the chance. So I would like to encourage you to maybe think if you have a question now rather than when we've finished, although we will hang around so you can chat to us. But I'll wait for like a few seconds until everyone is up on stage. And if I don't see any hands, I will ask the panel the first question. But if there are hands now, I think all of us really would like to give everyone in the audience a chance to ask. So I'm seeing one hand, that's amazing, and another one, that's great. So we have, as I mentioned, um, a recording going on, hence the microphones. And it would be great if you just briefly introduce yourself uh, before asking a question. So we have one at the back here and then one at the front as well, please. Hi, um, my name is Arjumand and I'm um, uh, a postdoctoral fellow at the um, Institute of Criminology and um, Sociology of Law, University of Oslo. Um, and my question relates to all four presenters in terms of um, their assessment or their analysis of the middle classness in um, Asia. Um, and it relates to what's happening to the, um, you know, there is a lot of emphasis on education, but is it only the economic security that education is is um, being discussed or education is doing something else as well in terms of maybe, you know, democracy, other values, etc. And, uh, you know, is socialist consumer in terms of, you know, what you were saying earlier, what's happening to socialist consumer? What is that being of socialist consumer when it comes to um their political sort of, you know, um, growth as well. Thank you. Thanks. Then we have a question here at the front as well. There's Krishna from Urban Economy Forum. Um, thank you for a very sort of um, interesting presentation of these four um, cities you're talking about. I just want to know about the time frame of the class journey that takes place. I mean, are there ways in which sort of, you know, what you know, is it in one generation or in two generations? Kind of time frame would be interesting to see. The other thing is that um, the what what are the 
factors that contribute to this migration. Like, for example, I did some st studies on 40 years ago in the in the states of Punjab, both in in uh, Pakistan and India, the introduction of green revolution in a way contributed to migration from rural to urban areas. So then again, international. So are there technological factors, uh, factors of production, like uh, maybe Vietnam, I'm sure it's uh, one of the factors that, you know, force of production in a way is uh, contributing to the necessity of migration. That is something that we would like to know. Then again, the rural urban migration does not necessarily contribute to production of middle class all the time. You also have repetition of the same class, even less than that, you see. Uh, we Do you have kind of data or information as to what percentage of the migrants coming into cities like Mumbai, you know, even they end up in slums or wherever, do they 30%, uh, 40% experience this class journey? Or do they remain? Or do they sometimes go back as to what happened during the pandemic in both in, 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 in India and the Philippines? It would be interesting to see the kind of, a, not a static thing, also, it's kind of a you know, dynamic one. Thank you. Thanks very much. There's two more questions, so we'll collect them. I hope you all can take some notes. And then um, we'll take a round after we've collected the two next questions. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Ahmed Musa from Brio. So my question is simple. If we have to think, rethink about development and class, can we also rethink about belongness? For example, if two people who belong to two, uh, one belongs to maybe a major, bigger social group, clan, ethnic, another belongs to a smaller social group, clan, ethnic, then both have moved up because of the class, will they enjoy access, same privilege? Will the, the one from the lower class, is he, is he or she going to overcome limitations that are imposed from being belonging to a, a lower class? Will they enjoy similar state has similar access to material things or still the, the 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 i mean the fact that they belong to two different classes or i mean to two different social groups is it going to stick or disappear thank you thank you uh, my name is butta defi i'm the, from the oslo uh, oromo community in oslo and the surrounding I, my question is specific to the first presenter, Marcus. Thank you for your uh, good introduction and uh, description of uh, the media image about Ethiopia and in general about the so-called the South. Uh, the South. But uh, Ethiopia is very complex, more than about 180 million people. And your description, was, as I understood, was focusing on uh, the capital city towards the center and from the north. I mean, Tigray, by its words. And culturally, the northerns and the, the, those who have been in power, the, I call them the unitarists, <laughs> they do share the same cultural and world views. And I'm from the central Oromia on the other side, and uh, probably you might have uh, good information. And the southern. And do you really, your, your, your sample, does it really reflect the Ethiopia that we are talking about? Because for my, the majority is on the other side. And uh, at the same time, what about the forced migration that you are reluctant to talk about? And uh, it's not only economic. And I am here in Norway, 
uh, for about uh, long ago because I was forced to move away. And uh, if we really rethink the development, I think it's very high time to include these, those uh, very essential variables. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm seeing you. I'm also kind of thinking maybe we need to try and, and answer some of these questions. And I hope we'll have time for a few more questions uh, at the end. Uh, so if you can keep your answers relatively brief, although I know that's very hard with the, these excellent questions, but please. And I suggest we just go the order you're sitting in to make it a bit simple. Oliver, would you like to go first? Yes. All right. Just to check if I messed up my microphone because I dropped it. No, it works. All right. <laughs> these are excellent questions, all of them. Um, I will try to, to provide some, some brief answers, so I think some of them, others here, are, are better placed to, to answer. Um, <clears throat> um, education and economic security, um, or more, yes, it's about more, I think. I think uh, well, for sure. Education is, has been a very central part of the socialist project of the government of, of Vietnam, so from that side, it's about more. Um, um, at a very at the stage where, where Vietnam was extremely poor, they already achieved almost universal literacy. So that's a very central part of, um, of, of that. For, for people as well, it's, it's about more. There's, uh, it's, it's about a lot of different things, I believe, but also about economic security. So I think, and I think it's interesting, if you compare it to the discussions in many European countries, or maybe especially in the US, for example, of this sort of hopelessness of, of, of young people um, getting education and, and sort of prospects of getting a good job. I think it's very different. In Vietnam today, there is, in many cases, a sort of a direct relationship between getting a good edu education and getting a decent job. Um, so that's, that's interesting as well. Uh, in terms of, of the political, it's very complicated because anyone you would ask in Vietnam would say they're not interested in politics, right? You need to, you need to even, even a, a, I even talked to a PhD candidate doing his PhD in political science in Europe who said he's not interested in politics, right? So that's a, that's a defense strategy, of course. Um, um, to what extent it sort of opens up political views, I think it's very hard to answer. It does, of course, uh, to, to, to quite an extent, but it's not very often not expressed much, right? It's, so there's this... Um, the reasons for sort of accepting the authoritarian uh, conditions in, that, that very often are in place um, uh, can, can be many, but of course one of them is just safety, right? Um, but there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of things going on right now as we speak. Um, the, the government is clamping down on a uh, budding environmental movement in the country, and a lot of uh, environmental uh, movement leaders have been jailed in Vietnam recently. Um, yeah, the, there's a lot to say about that. That's a good question. Um, time frame of middle classness, uh, certainly intergenerational, but not always. Um, remembering some of my interviews from, from other projects as well, there are people who have moved into the city and sort of been able to, to get a good job and almost become middle class overnight, right? Uh, but, but very often it's an intergenerational project. Um, I think the, the question about production as a force of migration is also a very important one. Um, it most certainly is a force of, of migration in, in, in Vietnam. Um, Vietnam has a lot of special economic zones um, where you can get a, a good job. These are the zones that made sure that, that Vietnam could keep up a high GDP growth rate during the pandemic because basically workers were staying there and they were sleeping in the factories and they were working. Um, 
uh, and this and this complicates the picture a lot because these were not I'm not in, the workers there are not included in the middle class category because they are quite obvious manual laborers. Um, but if you if you move often you would move from uh, from from the, the the for example mountainous villages uh, to close to the city to work in these factories. If you do that and you and you work in a Samsung factory for example, you earn comparatively very well, and you earn a lot more than you would do in a. Uh, as, a, as a public servant, for example. So the, that they complicates the picture a lot, but yes, production certainly uh, a force. And I think also, just very quickly, the, I think it's an excellent question on this rethinking belongingness or, or like other, other hierarchies get challenged by, by these changing class structures. Um, and I don't think I have a very good answer to it. Um, in Vietnam, there are clearly divides among ethnic lines between the 54 ethnic minority groups and the, 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 the vast majority of the, the king people. Um, but I, I, don't, I really don't know what happens. Uh, that's a very interesting question. All right. Uh, I just want to respond quickly about the education uh, question. So for sure, the, the, the money that potentially comes out of it, uh, that's very important. But Mm, I think in many countries the, there is the same term being used about people being an educated person and how important that is in terms of the status that comes with it. And the status uh, has real potential for generating new opportunities in terms of the, there are also the networks that come out of university studies and the wide expansion of different forms of capitals um, that goes beyond the, the money. And that brings me to the second question about um, the time frame of, of it. Because there, it's, of course, a relatively slow process, but as I've said, it can also be really quick. So in the Ethiopian case, in the 90s, there were only two universities in the country, but now I think there are about 40 public universities and, uh, I don't know, 50 private universities. There has been a huge expansion of the higher education sector, which means that there are more opportunities for people to go through that route. Of course, it changes the value of the higher education. So there are many dynamics happening at the same time. But I still think uh, it has really great potential for creating uh, wider opportunities, although there are also many people who get degrees who are unemployed for an extended period of time before they get access to the labor market and can start that transformation. But with the degrees, uh, that gives them a foundation that uh, can kickstart them for uh, transformation, even if their parents didn't, uh, are from the countryside and never went to, uh, to much school. Um, and for the question about the, the belonging, uh, that's something I also touch upon in the Ethiopian case in terms of ethnicity. Uh, but I also talk a bit about gender. For migration, it's particularly relevant because young men are much freer to migrate away from their parents, whereas women often stay within the household until they're married. Uh, so they don't have the same freedom to take advantage of the transformations that could occur uh, through, through migration. So I think, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, there are many of these dimensions that come into place uh, and also the hierarchies of different ethnic groups and who, who are in power. And that leads me to the final question. Of course, the, the Tigray group has, uh, is from the highlands and associated with the power and all of that. But interestingly, you know, that's, uh, the political party was from Tigray up until 2018 or so. Um, but many of my informants, they didn't see any benefits. They uh, were at the receiving end for a lot of stigma and violence because they were associated with power and privilege. So there is a difference between the political realities and people's uh, lives. Um, but so 
to, I'm not trying to represent all of Ethiopia and all uh, kinds of middle classes and try to speak of that. And of course, it's important to the, the forced migration from many parts of Ethiopia is, is, is very common and important things to discuss. But for this particular case, I'm trying to shed light on a very different aspect of it because we do get a lot of information about uh, the challenges that are there. But of course, we don't know enough about the, the mm, conflict in, in Oromia and the extreme violence and persecution that is taking place there. Um, but that said, uh, when I worked, I worked in Eastern Ethiopia in the last couple of years, uh, and there I kind of uh, saw uh, the materials that I wrote about in the book from a slightly different lens, but there were similar patterns in the sense that there were many people from Western Oromia, like Nekemt and these cities, uh, which is an area where there's a lot of conflict uh, over the last few years, and they move, for example, for higher education to, to the east, to the universities in Deradawa and Harar, and then they move on uh, for work to other places or they in, in that area. So it's kind of a similar pattern of migration for education and then subsequently for employment. So, so although there are big differences between the highlands and uh, the power dimensions within the country, there are some similarities in the urban to urban migration patterns for education, employment, and kind of this um, class transformation and social mobility. Thank you so much for the questions. Uh, I'll try to answer each question as best as I can in within, do I have a time limit? But yeah, you can tell me. <laughs> but in any case, if um, for those who asked, if you would like to talk about it more, um, feel free to approach me during the coffee break. So I'll start with the education. So building on what Arve and Marcus talked about. Um, yes, uh, for a lot of our respondents and for, uh, also in the case of their children, education was uh, a, is a form of cultural capital. But at the same time, what I found in my interviews, especially for the younger respondents, um, it was a way for them also to create particular aspirations. Mm -hmm. So, And a lot of them, because they, they get into um, these, they take different classes, they pursue particular courses, they're able to envision particular... Um, aspirations for particular jobs outside the country. Um, in, uh, not so much internally, though, and that's something we'll have to get into a bit more in, um, in depth in our analysis. Another thing um, I notice is that it is also a form of symbolic capital. So, so in a way, drawing for Bourdieu, from Bourdieu on um, the different forms of capital. So it's also a marker of achievement and prestige. But uh, interestingly, another thing I found in the interviews is that education is also a way for other family members to fulfill unfulfilled aspirations. So, for example, um, I have a respondent whose um, college education was funded by her brother who never got to finish um, a college education. And this is because their father died early and he had to become a breadwinner and he found a job as an overseas Filipino worker. So in a way, this is also why we want this prism of intergenerational families, because it allows us to think a bit more uh, about these different aspects of education consumption and how um, these also relate to the way to the ways families survive and also the different kinds of social reproduction that happens within a family. Uh, on the second question... In terms of the time frame, I think when it com came to the family history interviews, we focused more on making sure that we um, cover 
multiple generations, two to three, uh, uh, as an estimate. But at the same time, we hesitated on choosing a particular time period because, in a sense, a lot of families uh, have different timelines as well. But to give you a sense also of the scope of the respondents we were able to get, we were able to interview grandparents who were born in the 40s, 50s. Uh, we were able to interview um, uh, young people in their uh, 30s or late 20s, and also those in the middle, so 50s, 40s. So, th so it's really interesting because across the four cities, we were able to get these different age groups. And what's, um, of course, we're not yet done with the data analysis, but probably something interesting with this intergenerational framework is that we also see how these different structural changes have impacted or at least shaped the different migration movements that happen within a family over time. So um, in some of our Karachi interviews, for example, there, were, uh, there was always mention of 1947 or partition. Um, in the Manila case, the institutionalization of labor migration in the 70s, this was actually in the context of the oil boom in the Gulf. And I think this is, relates also to the Indian context. And because of this oil boom in the Gulf where they, had to, they wanted to hire many labor migrants from Asia, this is also the reason why a lot of our respondents had parents who went to the Middle East in the 70s or in the 80s. So in a sense, um, the time frame and also the structural transformations that mark those periods um, are also very important factors that we want to consider in our study. So thank you so much for pointing that out. Sorry, I think we'll pass to Anna because we're a little bit short. Uh, okay, okay, yeah, sure. I can come back to that later, yeah. Hi. Um, uh, so regarding education, I think uh, the observations from the survey side as well is quite similar to what Karen was saying. Of course, it um, it acts as a risk mitigation method for uh, employ uh, aspirations of better employment, but also it really does um, come across as um, kind of a symbolic capital as well, uh, which kind of elevates your status. So you could be a an engineer who is unemployed but still be an engineer, which is better than being an employed labor, at least. That's kind of the obs some of the observations that came out during the interviews. Um, regarding uh, the time frame of the class journey, it's uh, from, it's, uh, in our experience, it has been like quite varied. Um, there is, there is uh, people who moved up in one generation or people who struggled and stayed exactly where they were. Like you said, people coming into Mumbai to a slum first, going on staying there. Uh, these are field observations, but we focused on looking at the middle classes. Those are people who seem to have actually moved up, mainly through migration. Uh, they found a job, moved up, uh, came here, educated their children, moved up, bought a house, etc. Um, but of course, we also did hear stories of moving down especially that was also related with some of the structural transformations which happened, um, which could have been social or political, which uh, kind of, um, yeah, there was a loss of fortune or it could have been like a kind of um, something like a misfortune in the family, which brought down. But then we also did see ups and downs as well. Like there were like rich, poor, middle class. Yeah. So all kinds of things did come across. Tech transformation, um, 
driving the rural to urban uh, migration we yes that was significant uh, in some of the interviews but then there was also a lot of conversations about aspirational migration um uh, so i i was reminded of the um the the, the todaro model of migration that came in the 60s which was talking about the expected income differential so you you anticipate to do better and you go but like you said like people doesn't always do or do well as well um to uh, answer your question amit about uh, whether uh, it whether moving up whether social mobility actually uh, creates any kind of like erasure of um, existing social differences um so i i noticed two two different things but i would also say that these observations are quite incomplete one was that there was an aspiration to erase these especially for those who are from more disadvantaged uh, backgrounds uh, that hoping that through education or whatever you you move up in the class position so your um yeah so you your your ethnic or caste or in different contexts uh, yeah identities kind of uh, get submerged a bit and then there was there's all there was also this conversations about moving or migrating creating a sense of anonymity which might also help in this uh, thing but again uh, but like there was also conversations about uh, experiences which were quite contrary to these expectations um as well i'm yeah so it's quite incomplete in that sense our understanding of what it was but definitely these these musings did come up from the respondents while we were talking about them i Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Anu. And thanks for really good questions. I think we'll wrap up because we're a little bit over time. But if anyone wants to stay on and chat to us, I think all of us will be around. Uh, so before thanking you for coming, I'll just say that we've now touched on some topics that are important for rethinking development, notably urbanization, uh, middle classes as a plural category, migration, education. Uh, but I do think one of the things that we certainly are discussing a lot amongst ourselves, and I think which is uh, something which is important to think about further, is the aspect of how this is seen from where and we touched on it a bit but we didn't really confront it issue the issue properly i think and i think that's something we should do going forward so this of course has to do with decolonization of knowledge production debates we talked a lot about modernization what does that mean who decides what it is what type of education what is the value of that i think these are important conversations also in terms of how we discuss development and how we rethink it and also from where we rethink it so more as a point of departure for, for future reflections and discussions But with that thank you very much for coming and for engaging and please enjoy more coffee if you like before going thanks, thanks.